Tracy Lords can fuck off and die. She personally ruined the lives of a few friends of mine with all the bullshit she pulled in the 1980s. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is the Cecil. Yes. As well as Canadian Serbian Monkey Man Peter. All accurate. All true. So, guys, if you want to help out the show, we have a Patreon. We also ask you to go adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E. You will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All you have to do is use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Now, since you said uh, the thing about Peter, now I just see him dressed up like Big A. <laughs> That's always the way I see him. Yes. You can make a baby? You can make baby? <laughs> That's always the way I've seen Peter. Always. There you go. Well, tonight we're going to look at the career of a man who just passed, somebody who we've talked about many times before, Larry Cohen. He's not a household name, even in our circles, but this man, he's really almost unclassifiable in a genre. He's made westerns, he's worked on television, he's made horror films and sci-fi films and action movies and dramas. and black exploitation. Black exploitation comedy. He's really, Larry Cohen is unclassifiable, but I think most people know his horror films more than anything. What do you think of when you think of Larry Cohen? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is always Maniac Cop. As it might be the first of his movies that I had seen. He only produced that, though. Yeah, so what? His name is still on it. I was on a William Lustig kick at the time, and I was just trying to see as many of, of his movies as I as I possibly could, and Maniac Cop came up on one of them. And I noticed the name Larry Cohen, and I'm thinking, like, where else have I seen that name before? And it's like, wait a minute. And then it's like I'm remembering other movies that I've seen, and I, I tied him back to Phone Booth, which I thought was a pretty good movie. Then I remembered a little movie I had seen years prior to that called The Stuff, and I was like, wait a minute, he did The Stuff too? And then I started noticing that this was a really really versatile filmmaker like this is also the guy who did hell up in harlem this is also the guy who did black caesar and i had never really thought about directors too much at that time like i was i was what maybe 16 years old or something at the time i was just sort of getting into a lot of these movies and then i I start realizing that i had seen more larry cohen movies than i realized that i did but it all it all stemmed back from that noticing of him in the in the production you know, as a as a producer or whatever for Maniac Cop. I remember the first movie of his I saw was The Stuff, and it always stuck with me because it was such a bizarre mixture of horror and comedy, and really did a good job of uh, of balancing both because that's a really tough thing to get right, and also a good mix of satire. But at the time, I didn't really, you know, I was young, I didn't really understand satire. I've always thought it was just an amazing film, and I, I saw it, and I was like, this is great. And then I started to want to watch, you know, his other stuff, and went into. 
Full Moon High and It's Alive and Black Caesar and just really fell in love with the guy's just his style of filmmaking. The way that there's a passion there that um, really comes through in the movies. And I started to look more into the guy's history and found out what just a what a personable guy he was, like how he really took on a lot of, as they say, different hats. You know, he wrote, he directed, he produced, go out of his way to just talk to various people in the industry to, you know, work with them. Uh, he, as I did in the, uh, the stuff video where I talked about how, or, or no, I'm sorry. It was the maniac cop video. He would just go to like this one diner would just talk to actors and actresses. And he would call up, you know, people in the industry that he knew like uh, Bill Lustig and Hey, you know what? I want to do a movie, you know, and then it would, and they'd be doing a movie, you know, I mean, that's kind of in a way it's how it should be. You know, not all the the bureaucracy about it, not the uh, gigantic, overarching, humongous budgets, just the, hey, I've got an idea, let's make a movie. And they would, uh, you know, put it together and they'd make a movie and, you know, it would kind of live or die on its own merits. And most of the time, because there was a lot of talented people involved, it would do, uh, it would do well. That fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants attitude, though, is what kept him out of mainstream Hollywood. Because more than once, real, you know, real big studio productions would be interested in him. And he, they didn't appreciate his... I'll make it up as I go along thing. Like we talked about in our Maniac Cop retrospective, when he was running behind on the Maniac Cop 3 script, he just started making up a script and dictating it to the producer over the phone. And he was like, no, that's not how this works, asshole. And he just fired him. Like, no, you don't just dictate a script to me and tell me to write it down. That's not how this works. (laughs) But if he had just listened to him, they probably would have had a really good script. Yeah. No one knows what he's doing. If he is very unorthodox, but god damn it, he does know what he's doing. He's kind of been at this for a while. Yeah. You know, by the time, you know, it's, it's perfect. I mean, you know, as you said, I mean, I mean, now it's a little unorthodox, but I mean, now I can imagine that there's probably been people that have, uh, Skyped or uh, emailed a, a script over or something. You know, it, it's like, I, I don't know. I think that eh, it's just, it's, it's weird, but I don't know. It's you kind of know what you're getting. You kind of have to know what you're getting into when you're getting into uh, something with Cohen. I feel and, like people do what Cohen was trying to do, the dictating the script over the over the phone kind of stuff more often than not now than they did back then. Anyway, like I like if you just hear all the stories now of how movies get made and these boardrooms of, of screenwriters and all these things getting getting thrown up on a dartboard and there likely are Skype conference calls between like 10, 20 other people and they're basically hashing out a script that way. You can you can tell so many Hollywood movies now are Franken films and yet back then they wouldn't let one guy do it who could have done it very cohesively because he knows what he's doing. And now you've got a bunch of jagoffs just jerking off in a boardroom doing a very crappy version of what Cohen knew how to do professionally. Cohen really did know his stuff, although sometimes he might have been a little ahead, too far ahead of the game. For instance, the story about in the 1960s, there was a TV show he was writing for called NYPD. He wrote a script that they considered too graphic and too too nuanced. You know, they were just trying to make a cop show, so they rejected it. In the 90s, he sold that exact same script to NYPD Blue and won an Emmy for it. <laughs> I remember that. That script, you know, for 60s TV, I assume the NYPD Blue script had some rewrites on it. But seeing the NYPD Blue episode probably wouldn't have worked in the 60s, so I I do agree with that a little bit. But he was thinking ahead. He was too far ahead of the game. And see, for me, Larry Cohen, 
I got introduced to him not through his movies, but through his TV shows. Mm. I used to watch, now obviously not first run because I wasn't born yet, I watched The Invaders in syndication growing up. That that was a very, like, ahead of its time kind of story. Yeah, and but that was my introduction to Larry Cohen was The Invaders. And then I didn't realize it at the time, but I remember seeing all the sequels to The Magnificent Seven, and he did those, or at least the first one. He he, he did a lot of TV work that a lot of people don't realize. His his TV work, he wrote for TV shows such as Way Out, Zane Grey Theater, Checkmate, Doctors and Nurses. He wrote a couple of episodes of The Fugitive. The Defenders. He created the TV show Branded, which most people our age might only know from the parody on Married with Children. But if you <laughs> ask, but guys, right, Peter, Cecil, if you guys ask your parents about Branded, they'll go, oh, God, do I remember that show. Oh, my parents probably wouldn't. They grew up in uh, Belgrade, Serbia. They have, they have no idea who Larry Cohen is. Your parents' generation would know Branded. You know, he wrote for the Rat Patrol, obviously Invaders. He wrote for, he wrote episodes of Columbo in the 70s. He wrote a bunch of TV movies. He did a lot of TV, which really kind of in a way kept him hidden. Because the very cool uh, Cornette Blue as well. Yeah. That one I checked out after I watched the King Cohen documentary, and that's that's a hell of a original idea and very very different and very modern for something that came out in the late 60s. When you say Larry Cohen to anyone who does know him, they're mostly going to start thinking of his movies. Yeah. They, they don't remember just how prolific he was writing for TV. And I mm. do mean prolific. I'm not comparing him to Ed Wood. One of Ed Wood's, one of his strengths was how fast he could hammer out a screenplay. Oh, yeah. Oh, you my know, God. Ed Wood could hammer out a full 100-page screenplay in a day. He was a lightning-fast typist with, with almost no mistakes. Larry Cohen was like that as well, but obviously with a lot more talent behind the words mm-hmm. than Ed Wood was. So well, Larry is really like quite a brilliant uh, storyteller and he, he really has like, I think, what did he talk about in the, the King Cohen documentary when he was talking about his process? He, he would think of a scene and then like something that's like a cool scene or an interesting scene or a scary scene or something and then he would try to create the movie around that, like what happens before that, what happens after that, what happens, you know, in between or whatever, what characters show up. Just thinking of that one idea while he's like out somewhere then he'll come home and he'll start writing around that and create like a world around it which i that's that's some great advice like that's actually a really good idea because i guarantee a lot of people that are like aspiring creatives or aspiring writers have that have that one cool scene that they're thinking about a lot if you listen to a song that you like or you're just thinking about something and there's just this idea in your head that could be a way to create a full-fledged screenplay or or a novel it could it could all come from that one little fictional event that's that's in your head that you think might be interesting well or sometimes we'll talk more about god told me to in a little bit you can clearly just tell he's making the movie up as they're shooting it too (laughs) i love god told me to but i guarantee you that movie did not have a completed script it just it didn't i guarantee it they were making that movie up as they shot it track record is cohen who make who made as many movies as he did obviously there's going to be some some rushed out ones and a a couple duds here and there because the guy was constantly working and he, and well, the reason I brought up the Edward Speed thing was when he was working in TV. Now, obviously, TV production moves at a much faster rate than a movie production. Oh, yes. Yeah. And he could hammer out a script for a TV show in three days. An average is three weeks to get wow. a script for a TV show. And he could just hammer out a, a shooting draft in three days from here's my idea to let's shoot this f- 
So he, That's- his, his speed was a big aid in his rise. And yet, he's got some big movies on his resume, and yet he never really became as big as he probably should have. So l- let's go back to the beginning. He started in black exploitation for films. You know, he'd come off television with branded invaders and stuff with, with movies like Bone, Black Caesar, Hell Up in Harlem. They were great. They're just really enjoyable. You've got Fred Williamson, who is just, uh, you know, a black exploitation staple. He's awesome. And he pretty much is who made, uh, Fred Williamson a household name. Like, thanks to Cohen, he was really well known in that scene. Well, well, yeah. also, Bone had Yafet Koto just owning oh, every yeah. scene he was in. Oh, yeah. Just Yafet Koto just being awesome. They're good because it's like knowing his style and then seeing that style in a black exploitation style film. They're very different from a lot of, a lot of other black exploitations. It's just, they're, they're interesting. They're well done. They're, they're fun. They're well produced. They're, they're entertaining. There's good writing. They're clever. I like black exploitation. I went off on how, you know, about it as a whole on, uh, my Superfly video, but I think that there are some of them where it's just like, all right, we got a couple people in a camera. Let's, let's do this. Whereas these, uh, even though they were maybe cashed out quickly, they're still that element of freshness. There's that element of they were, they're well done. They're entertaining. I've, I've liked his black exploitation stuff a lot. And I think that, um, it, a lot of it, uh, he doesn't get recognized for them because he's a white guy, you know, white guy doing a black exploitation film. Ah! But yet, if you ask like Fred Williamson on his opinions on Cohen, like he sees Cohen as a brother, like they really got along amazingly well. And he really appreciates Cohen for what he did. There was that movie. Uh, what was the one Williamson did more into the mid to early nineties? Original Gangsters? Uh, yes, that he, he even brought Cohen on either to write or I think he brought him on to direct. Direct. Yeah, mm-hmm, because correct. he appreciated uh, all the stuff that he did with him in the 70s, like Black Caesar and with Hell Up in Harlem. So he was like, you know what? Cohen knows what he's doing. I'm going to bring him on to do this because I trust him as a filmmaker and I trust him as a friend. You know, that was the whole thing. They brought, you know, Fred Williamson, Jim Brown, Pam Greer. So they brought all of them oh, back. Yeah. It only made sense to bring him back, you know? Well, then after the black exploitation stuff, he moved into horror with It's Alive, which was a really weird movie for 1974. <laughs> Warner Brothers never quite got it. They were very happy when they got the box office returns, but mm. they, they, they were never really, they didn't Wasn't that movie it. going like head to head with The Exorcist? No, the, the exorcist was a year earlier. Warner Brothers never really interfered with it, but they, they sort of were like, okay, we'll just put this thing out. It'll do what it does and, and then we'll move on. And then all of a sudden it went, whoa, this thing made a ton of money. Yeah. Yes. Movie tickets were probably like a, I think they were like a dollar 25 back then. <laughs> yeah. So that's and, and, and huge. so if anything, if you think about it, it's alive made more money than the Avengers movies are actually making. Cause off the tickets for the new movies today they're like 15 16 bucks each in some cities 20 and it's alive raked in millions in return for tickets that were like a buck 20 so that's that's a lot of people going to see a movie about a monster baby i I love the tagline to the movie there's just one thing wrong with the davis's baby it's alive (laughs) that's so great that's a great um, tagline he kind of he kind of swindled rick baker into the effects for that movie too he was just kind of like i want to do a test little little test creature creature design we'll see we'll see how it looks maybe make some hands we'll see how the hands look okay let's do like a test shot of it with, with like some black you know black mat behind it or whatever and then it ends up using all of that footage for the, for the film you know what that's that's really really smart 
hey, the guy was nothing if not economical. Well, and then he moved on to God Told Me To, which I actually think might be We should my... talk a little bit more about the It's Alive series, though. I don't really want to talk too much about It's Alive, because I do want to do a retrospective on it. So, I mean, there were two sequels and a crappy remake that doesn't count. In 1978, he made It Lives Again, and then the thoroughly bizarre 1987 It's Alive 3 Island oh, of the Alive. I love that one. That one is another... Because he really pushed up... He, I think he really wanted Michael Moriarty to be like a bigger star because he was using him in a lot of stuff. And I feel like one of his most more impressive outings was in the third It's Alive movie. Like, I really like that one a lot. And I think it's because of Moriarty's performance that pushed that one to be a little more interesting than it was. And it was kind of cool to have, like, an island of, like, the grown-up babies. That's a weird, funky little series of movies. The only problem I have with doing a retro, although we will do it, is I don't want to sit through that remake again. That remake was as ill-conceived as you think it is. I kind of remember that coming out. That was only just a few years ago, wasn't it? It, it? it just sort of came out. No one cared in any conceivable way. There was no backlash, but no hype. No one cared. It, it was... A lot of people are shocked when they go, they remade It's Alive? Yeah, they did. No one gave a <laughs> shit. And, and then the you have the people that is... are like, It's Alive was a it was a remake of something? Like, I'm sure a lot of people don't even remember that that was a movie. Today's sort of more like millennial generation or whatever. I mean, you have people that are a bit younger, like I am, that obviously grew up watching the reprints and VHSs and, and DVDs of these movies. But I'm sure a lot of people are like, F- is It's Alive, Monster Baby. And then hopefully they went back and watched the original movies and really enjoyed them because, God, the It's Alive live series is great. I think he wrangled up the composer who did like the music for for Taxi Driver to do the theme and it's a Bernard great Herman. Theme too. No, it was Bernard Herman from Psycho. Yeah, yes, and it's a fantastic uh fantastic theme. It's depressing too if you think about it how the remake probably cost more than the previous 3 films combined. <laughs> That's the way it works nowadays. But then we move on to God Told Me To, which, like I said, it might be my favorite Larry Cohen film. This one is everything. It's it's a blaxploitation movie. It's a cop drama. It's a sci-fi drama. It's a monster movie. It's a religious film. It's a it's a personal drama movie. This movie is everything, which is also kind of why I say it's so obviously made up as they went along. Every ten minutes, it shifts genres, which is kind of why I love God Told me to. Andy Kaufman is a psychotic policeman shooting people at the St. Patrick's Day Parade. You're not going to get that anywhere else. I think Larry Cohen might have been on MDMA when he made that movie. (laughs) He had a lot of ideas when he was making uh, God Told Me To, which eventually morphed into ideas that he ended up using in Maniac Cop. Mm. So, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, he he's just, I mean, that's the way that his brain would work. He would be like, okay, well, I have this. Oh, this is great. Oh, this won't work here, but it'll work somewhere else. And I think he just kind of would jump, you know, from here to there with that. But yeah, God told me to is just bonkers. It's, I, uh, I also, I also love the fact, you know, I guess, I guess being economical as he was, he didn't even shoot any of the sci-fi scenes. They're all taken directly from the TV series Space 1999. So, <laughs> so does that make this a Space 1999? 99 spinoff kind of sure in the same way that space mutiny is a spinoff of battlestar galactica but i I just i i love god told me to as much as i do like tony lobianco as our main character that was originally supposed to be robert forster he he quit after two days of filming when he couldn't stand working with cohen cohen was one of those guys who yelled at everyone on the set and i just said this isn't for me let me out of here we parted friendly and that was that 
unquote. No. But then I guess he kind of worked with them again in Mania Cop 3. But then Cohen left, wasn't it halfway through that one too? Or he yeah. was fired because of the dictating of the script over the phone. But uh, I actually, you know, like I said, I like Tony LaBianco, but Robert Forster is a better actor. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I just, I would have liked to have seen Robert Forster in that part. But come on, Richard Lynch is an alien who's claiming to be Jesus, who has a vagina in his stomach. How do you not love this movie? Well, that just is Richard Lynch. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> Richard Lynch for real. <laughs> they, 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 didn't, they didn't even animate the glow. They just took his clothes off and he glowed. Well, and then he made one. This is a Larry Cohen movie I've never seen. The Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover. It was a movie about J. Edgar Hoover's rise through the FBI. I don't have anything else to add. I haven't seen this one. Either of you? Like, it's like a, I, I think it's one of his more kind of serious movies. Like, he tried to be, he tried to make like a genuine political sort of drama. It was all right. Well, and then, and then there's It Lives Again, which we're going to breeze over. And then he made a TV movie that I have to admit I haven't seen, but it sounds interesting. It's written and directed by him. It stars Esther Roll and Paul Dooley. It's called See China and Die. Quote, a maid who reads detective stories finds herself embroiled in a real-life mystery involving her dead boss and a mysterious statue he brought back from China. Unquote for a plot. That sounds actually pretty interesting, but that's one I haven't seen. That one I haven't seen either. I didn't even didn't even know about that one. I don't know about that one either. It does sound uh, sounds right up my alley. Well, and then we'll we'll move on to. I remember catching this on cable in the mid '80s. Full Moon High is a bizarre movie. <laughs> it's a comedy horror film, but it's it's got some pretty mean spirited comedy to it. But it's got legit funny moments. But a high school student who is also a werewolf years before Michael J. Fox would do it. By the way. It's got weird meta references. I haven't seen it in 20 years, but I just rewatched the trailer. There's a scene where a character shoots at him and misses and hits the camera. And it's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I can't remember if that's actually in the movie or just the trailer, because like I said, it's been over 20 years. I remember really enjoying Full Moon High for as offbeat as it is. And seeing Ed McMahon from The Tonight Show in sort of a badass role is a little off-putting. It, uh, it just got put out on Blu-ray not too long ago, maybe like two years ago or so. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's, uh, it's very much, very much a Larry Cohen film in that it's a bunch of different genres and it's weird, quirky, and it's, um, it's not at all really what you're going to expect for this kind of film. You go in thinking it's going to be like Teen Wolf, for lack of a better description, it's Teen Wolf. If it was done by Larry Cohen. It's also a lot more mean-spirited of a comedy, as you would think. Yeah, it kind of, in a way, reminds me of My Boyfriend's Back. He's murdering, like, at one point uh, in that film, the, the kid, the kid's a zombie, and, it, it, like, he has to eat people in order to, to be stay alive long enough to go to the prom. And his parents abduct a child to feed to him. Like, it's kind of that bizarre, dark sense of humor in there where it's like, oh, okay, this is going to happen. You know, yeah, it's very, very weird. Well, like with any Larry Cohen movie, you really kind of don't know what you're going to get, especially when he's trying to make a comedy, which he doesn't do very often. When he's trying to make a comedy, it's it's not Zucker Brothers level, but it's one of those things where for a laugh, anything can happen and it will technically make sense in the script. And then we go, one of my favorite Larry Cohen movies, Q, 
the winged serpent. Oh, Q this was, was fantastic. I, I remember seeing the video box all the time when, you know, in the eighties when I was at the video store, I eventually saw it. Now this is another one where you can kind of tell that they were making up the movie as they went along because you have subplots that just end. They don't go anywhere. They're just, Hey, we spent 20 minutes with this character who never appears in the movie again and just <laughs> vanishes. We have plot lines that were brought up in the first 10 minutes of the movie that are quickly wrapped up in the last three minutes of the movie. Like they remembered, Oh yeah, the, the, the whole guy skinning people. We should probably wrap that plot line up. It is <laughs> full of those. Where else are you going to see Kwai Chang Kane and John Shaft fighting a stop motion lizard above New York City? That one is just fantastic. Obviously, the effects are a little dated. They maybe didn't have quite the budget that they wanted for the monster. But the characters are there. Um, the character played by Michael Moriarty is, is fantastic. And just his ad-libbing in that film is amazing. Uh, Cohen really gave him a lot of creative freedom to to do that role. And just anything he told him to do, he would do, you know, be louder, be quieter, be scarier, do whatever uh, to make the character work more. Everybody's uh, fantastic in that movie. Obviously, David Carradine is fun in there. He's like a SWAT army army guy. He is the lead detective on the case and his partner is is John Shaft. He's he's guy with gun one, and John Shaft is guy, Richard Roundtree is guy with gun two, uh, and they're both very badass, and they're fighting this winged serpent dragon thing in the middle of New York, and when they were filming the movie up on the, the scaffolds and firing the fake guns and stuff, the shells falling to the ground made uh, people think there was actually a terrorist attack going on in New York City, so even the, the making of the film is is iconic and uh, weird and kind of terrifying, and as the as the film itself, which is a very weird, very it's, it's quirky, it's awesome, it's badass, it's really entertaining. Uh, Q is absolutely one of my favorites of the the, the big monster running amok in uh, New York City or some other big big city movie. It's uh, I think Q is fantastic, and anyone that hasn't seen it and you know prides themselves on uh, loving Larry Cohen movies definitely needs to see it. Well, and it, this is, Q is also one of those movies that just sort of happened. And I, I don't mean this along with the, you know, obviously we were writing the script as we're shooting thing. Larry Cohen was in New York City to, he, he had just gotten fired from another movie. So when he was leaving his hotel, he looked up at the Chrysler building and just thought, huh, that'd be a great place for a nest. <laughs> went back to his hotel and started writing out a plot came back with $25,000 later rented asked people at the Chrysler building to allow his people up there and he you know a week later they were shooting a movie he called in David Carradine and, and Richard Roundtree and Michael Moriarty he's like hey guys we're I'm gonna make a movie you want to make a movie sure let's make a movie I believe if my memory serves I saw Q for the first time on like uh, I don't think it was Monster Vision but it was like one of those late night TNT things where they were running a bunch of monster films and q was one of them and probably because okay, he never ran this on monster vision so probably 100 percent weird probably something like that but because it was like just one of their monster fests where they'd run like that and with tango and and i remember not knowing anything about it aside from they ran their little trailer ahead of time you know coming up we've got and uh i was like oh this looks really good and i'm watching it i'm like this movie's nuts like <laughs> the the stop motion monster is awesome i mean terrified me back in the day now i look at it and i love it but it's like oh god it looks so cheesy they they really uh they had a great idea and this is one where 
out of all of his films, out of all of Cohen's films, this seems to me like one that I don't want it to be remade, but it's a remake that would make the most sense because I think concept and everything there is really solid i think it's great it's just they didn't have enough you know budget to really really do the 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 monster as well as they wanted to well yeah because uh, it kind of just looks like a hot dog with wings like it's like one sometimes, color yeah very yeah. cheap yeah you look at the poster and you're like oh it looks so cool it looks so cool you know wasn't the poster like a Boris Vallejo style artwork? Yes. It was, it was something like that. So yeah, it's going to look good. Of, like, uh, either like a, like a Conan the Barbarian comic book or novel cover, like a Dungeons and Dragons manual looking thing. Well, and then the other thing about Q is this is another movie like God told me to, probably owing to the fact that it's clearly being, you know, made up as they're shooting it. It's got a little bit of everything. It's a monster movie. It's a cop thriller. It's a crime thriller. It's a drug thriller. It's a, it's a, it's a movie about a man's breakdown it's a little bit of a bunch of genres all thrown together that all happen to center around a giant prehistoric beast maybe or maybe not being brought back by aztec rituals who just happens to be terrorizing new york city just and i think that's it. why it works and it doesn't just need to work on the merits of a monster movie it's like sure the monster might look cheap but look at all this other great stuff uh character wise that's going on after that, he would do a movie that nobody has seen. Uh, it's called Perfect Strangers, No Balky. This is one, I had thought I hadn't seen this. And then I looked it up on IMDb, and I'm like, I've seen that poster. I swear I've rented this movie. But I don't, I don't remember it, but I swear I've seen this. A hitman tries to seduce the mother of a child who witnessed his most recent kill. Well, that same year, 1984, he made special effects. This is one where I think it's not a good movie. I rewatched it a couple of years ago i don't think it's a good movie i think it's a good idea it just the characters are thoroughly unlikable there's some really bad acting in this movie but it's basically a movie about killer working in movies a man a director goes crazy is trying to make a movie based on the murder he committed of his fiance or girlfriend it's been a little while and i'm going god that's a great idea god i hate 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 every single character in this movie to the point where I don't want to see them anymore. Special effects, good idea, not good movie. I don't know if I even remember that one or if I've seen it. I don't really have anything to say about it. I saw it a long time ago. Uh, I had just seen talk radio with Eric Bogosian, and so I was trying to follow up, you know, on other movies that he had done. I honestly don't even really remember this that much. He is so brutally unlikable in this movie, isn't he? And he's supposed to be our point of view f***ing character. Yeah. Well, he's he's good at being an, like, I like the guy, but he's good at being an unlikable guy. But even when you're an unlikable guy, there's got to be something for the audience to latch on to, not why isn't this guy being killed right now? <laughs> well, and then the next year he did what might be Larry Cohen's most famous movie, maybe besides It's Alive, and that's The Stuff. I just mm. recently, maybe six months ago, showed this movie to my girlfriend for the first time. I love this movie. 
the stuff. I mean, yes, the special effects don't exactly hold up as most Larry Cohen movies. You, we can say that about. I would the acting. say though, out of out of all of this movie, out of all of his movies, though, I think that this the effects that I think still hold up the best. Like yeah, some of, of his the effects, effects in, in the stuff are really good. Oh yeah, like they had the the room that uh, that turned on its side so that they could film the uh, the stuff going up the wall and all that. Which he was I mean, inspired by from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, it was the same. No, thing. it was the actual same set. It was. Yeah. The same set, yeah. What the the guys that had it, they would rent it out for different movie company, you know, things to do. But I mean, but it was a clever use of it, you know, with the so it would it had the stuff going up the wall. Uh, yeah, chocolate chip Charlie's, you know, uh, face coming open with the with the stuff jumping out of it, and a lot of the stop motion. And I mean, it, I think I think there was something like like six or eight different substances that they used for the stuff sometimes it was shaving cream sometimes it was uh, uh fish paste sometimes, sometimes it was melted it was ice cream melted ice cream uh they said the actors were gaining weight because they were so they had to keep redoing the scenes where they're eating the melted ice cream and they started packing <laughs> on the- <laughs> I'm going to say the stuff might be his smartest movie, his most clever movie, and I think that's why, other than the fact that a freak weather incident caused the movie to possibly bomb, I actually think that's why this was one of his least successful movies financially. People didn't want this kind of movie from Larry Cohen. They didn't want, basically, the network of advertising as a monster movie from Larry Cohen, you know? The stuff is kind of a, a strange one, because it is it is really smart it is really entertaining. Uh, some of the effects in it really hold up well, but it's also just a perfect B movie because there, there are performances in it that are genuinely good. Like Michael Moriarty is really great in it. He's very, very charismatic as well as, a, as well as a few others. But then you've also got that just brilliantly hilarious opening scene when they're in the Antarctic or wherever, like there's a lot of snow and there's some, some like, uh, it's in New well, York, whatever, it's like snowing. It's in New York. They're just, it's snowing. Yeah, there's somewhere where it's like a lot of snow. And the guy reaches down and pulls up, you know, the stuff that's growing out of the ground, eats it and goes, Mmm, this is good. Tasty. It's like, okay, that's um that's something normal people do. Just reach down to something that's like coming out of the ground and put it in your mouth and then he's like trying to get other people to try it. Oh, you gotta taste this, it's so good. It's like oh, Get over my here, God. you gotta try this. You gotta try this. It's so over the top and it's amazing. Like the the stuff is both si- simultaneously a really smart science fiction movie, but also a hilarious, uh unintentionally hilarious uh B movie. Like I think it's it's the perfect Perfect storm of so bad it's good and so good it's actually fantastic. Well, and then after the stuff, he would do It's Alive 3, so we're going to gloss over that. I remember hating this movie. A Return to Salem's Lot, a sequel to the Toby Hooper miniseries from the 70s. Uh, This movie... I watched it again maybe 10 years ago going, you know what? I'll give it another chance. I actually think I hated it more. Larry mm. Cohen is not the right man to follow a Stephen King movie. I didn't really like the Salem's Lot miniseries, but this thing is an insult to the Salem's Lot miniseries. I don't know if that's what Cohen was trying to do, but Return to Salem's Lot blows ass. 
I didn't care for the original, and I never actually watched the the sequel. I mean, I I should say the first one I need to revisit. I hadn't seen it in a very long time, but I remember not caring for it, and so I never watched the sequel. I actually haven't seen it. No. Well, and then then we go on to one that I'm going to admit I want to see, but I have not seen the Billy D. Williams Vanity Morgan Fairchild movie Deadly Illusion, which just I mean, okay, by the plot description, it seems like a by the numbers, a detective is framed for a murder he didn't commit. Okay, it's a Larry Cohen movie, but I don't know, that just doesn't sound that great, you know? I believe I saw this one on, like, USA Up All Night, but I honestly, I, it seems familiar. I just, I don't, I, I don't remember anything about it. I just remember Billy D, because Billy D is awesome, but... I, I, I remember something with him and Morgan Fairchild. Like, I just, I, I don't know if I've just seen the trailer a whole bunch of times or if I actually watched this. Well, and then after that, no, these are all, he, he usually makes a movie as a director about a year, year or two apart. So then in 1989, he has Wicked Stepmother, which I have seen. And this one is bizarre. First of all, it stars Betty Davis, Barbara Crampton, Colleen Camp, David Raish, Richard Mall, Lionel Stander. What the f***? <laughs> a mother-daughter pair of witches descend on a yuppie family's home and cause havoc. One at a time since they share one body and the other must live in a cat the rest of the time. Now it's up to the family's mother, a private detective and a suspended police officer to try and stop the witches. I have seen this one and it doesn't work, but it's a lot of fun. That's one I've been meaning to see because it looks really entertaining. I just haven't seen it yet. It it looks like it's probably hilarious and a lot of fun. Saw it a long time ago because I was like, I need to see Tom Bosley as a freaking cop. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. It's bonkers. It's it's bad, but it's like entertainingly bad. But then on the other hand, you have in 1990, he made God Told Me To might be my favorite Larry Cohen movie. The Ambulance might actually be his best. I know I said that maybe about the stuff, but on, on a critical level, The Ambulance might just be his best movie. That's a with, fantastic movie, too. Yeah, with with James Earl Jones and Eric Roberts, Megan Gallagher. Stan Lee as himself in the Marvel studio. <laughs> it, yeah, The Ambulance is a movie that shouldn't really exist, but it does, yet no one knows this. Nobody knows this movie. The Ambulance is one of those movies you would think would be talked about, maybe not on the same level as something like Network, but in the same vein of, this was like a genre-defining sort of movie. I really do love The Ambulance. Mm. It's a bad title. That's a bland, lifeless title. I yeah. wish Cohen had come up with a better title for it. The Ambulance is fantastic. It's a really slick movie with a lot of really original ideas and it's it's something you can't you couldn't make today. I mean, this is when comic books weren't the huge ginormous conglomerate that they are now. Because throughout the whole movie, when because Eric Roberts plays an artist for Marvel Comics and Stan Lee plays himself, they have a Marvel studio. There's pictures of the the Hulk, Spider Man, Captain America, Wolverine, Wolverine, just all over the place on Eric Roberts' character's wall in the Stan in the uh, Marvel studio. And, and I'm sure they were able to just do this because it was probably cheap to get Marvel in your movie, and I'm sure Stan Lee wanted the promotion. There's no way you could just have a picture of Spider-Man today in some, like, smaller movie or any movie without having to pay Marvel and Disney out the ass to get that to show up, even, like, one picture of Spider-Man. Well, Stan Lee and Larry Cohen, I, I don't think they were great friends, but they knew each other, so mm. I'm gonna, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm gonna say it was probably, hey, Stan, can you do me a favor? Sure, Larry. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm sure it was just something like that. I was actually looking into it. I'm trying. I'm having a harder time now because, you know, Larry is, has passed on. The There was a lot of evidence and a lot of things that were popping up where I was discovering that the ambulance was originally Maniac Cop 3. I've I've re- I've heard that as well. That like, I, I think I think more of it is what Larry was going to do for Maniac Cop Three before he got fired. Probably made its way into the ambulance. Mm-hmm. But I, I I I've heard the same thing. I don't know how much of it I believe. I can see it to a degree, and then part of me says, "Nah, that just doesn't that doesn't fly." Well, I mm. think that it, I think it's more along the lines of what you had said. Is that he? You know, because Larry's great for hey, that's a good idea. It just, uh, you know, we couldn't use it here, so we'll use it here. So I think it was whatever, maybe whatever he was trying to dictate over the phone, you know, he ended up being like, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to take that and incorporate that into, you know, incorporate that into this other movie. Well, the ambulance was three years before Maniac Cop 3, though. I I think when they were trying to make Maniac Cop 3 after Maniac Cop 2, which is the same year as the ambulance, Mm. it's probably, these are the ideas I have for Maniac Cop 3. Nobody wants them, so screw you. I'll make my own movie with hookers and ambulances. And ambulances <laughs> yes. I don't know how much of that story I believe, but I'd like to believe it. He's not around anymore to ask because he would have been, he would have been somebody who, I mean, he was one of the most open people to, to talk about his history and, and he was somebody kind of like Joe Bob. He has the gift of gab. You know, he could get on a topic and we'll just talk your ear off. He took a couple of years off. He, he produced, like I said, he got fired from Maniac Cop 3 in the interim. The next thing he directed was another TV movie called As Good as Dead. Judge Reinhold and Tracy Lords, because why not? Susan switches identities with her new friend Nicole so that Nicole can pay for her medical bills with Susan's insurance. Then Susan finds herself trapped in her new identity when Nicole ends up dead under questionable circumstances. I remember avoiding this movie because Tracy Lords can f*** off and die. She personally ruined the lives of a few friends of mine with all the bullshit she pulled in the 1980s, so I will never willingly watch something that has Tracy Lords in it. That's I always avoided this one because Tracy Lords is a cascading thunder cunt who can die for all I care. And then the last thing Larry Cohen directed was an episode in the first season of Masters of Horror called Pick Me Up. And I hate to say this, but the man went out on one of his weakest notes. Pick Me Up was a terrible episode. That's the one where it, uh, Michael Moriarty's a truck driver, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was one of the weakest episodes of the first season of Masters of Horror, and it was just a bad hour of television. It certainly wasn't the worst thing he ever made, and as always, you know, Moriarty and, and Cohen both bring it together, and I th- thought it was good for what it was. And that, that show was never, in my opinion, all that great to begin with. I really liked Masters of Horror. I th- just thinking with the first season, I thought Toby Hooper's episode was great. John Landis's, despite the fact that he's a multiple murderer, his episode was great. Joe Dante's episode was great. The John John McNaughton episode was great. And then you had everything else. Well, what I about love, no, the, the Don uh, Coscarelli also say, one? I was, I was just about to say, yes, the Don Coscarelli one was quite good as well. Cohen's, it felt like he was phoning it in. It just, it was a weak story. It was unoriginal. Even Moriarty seemed like he was just by the numbers. I remember Pick Me Up being one of the least interesting episodes of that 13-episode first season. 
So that's just, to me, a bad note for Larry to have made his last directorial effort. What then do you think the legacy of Larry Cohen is going to be? Do you think people are going to remember him for his more high-profile stuff or for his more cult movie stuff? Where is Larry Cohen's legacy going to land? I think as as one of the great cult movie filmmakers, like he's got such a library of iconic movies for people to discover from now until when this planet finally blows up. I think uh, primarily he's going to be remembered for the stuff being that is probably the the movie that most people really think of when they think Larry Cohen, if they know of Larry Cohen. And hopefully uh, they will actually take some time and look into his the rest of his catalog and see that the guy has quite a wide variety of stuff from a lot of different genres. He's really hard to pin down. Like you really can't say, well, he's, you know, he's a horror director because even though his bigger movies were horror, he's done so many different types of genres that uh, he's all done them very fluidly and very effortlessly. And uh, I just hope that um, we'll start to get a little bit more recognition. Shame that his death came, I think, before he really, truly was recognized for as good of a writer and director as he was. But I think really his writing, I think even he would admit that he was more of a writer than a director. Well, and then there's also the fact that I think part of his legacy is going to be he was that just screw it, do it kind of guy. How he came up with Q. Hey, that building looks interesting. I could make a monster movie out of that. And a week later, they're shooting a fucking monster movie in New York. Like Peter pointed out, you just can't do that anymore. No. He was one of those guys that just, let's make a movie. Now, that didn't always work. I mean, you know, Lloyd Kaufman has that same attitude. Larry Cohen has a much better track record than Lloyd does when it comes to quality. I love Lloyd Kaufman, but we have to admit, most of what Troma puts out these days is utter garbage. Larry Cohen, I think, is that stalwart sort of sort of will-not-give-up kind of guy that you don't see anymore except in the, from the older generation. You don't see a newer generation of people that can do it on Larry's level. You're always going to have idiots like Justin Price and people like that who think, I'm the next Larry Cohen. I make, you know, five five movies a month and, and, and they're all amazing. No, you're not. You're not Larry Cohen. <laughs> There's a couple Look, standout filmmakers, I, I'd have to say, that could... I wouldn't say they're the next this or the next that, but they're definitely becoming cult directors and cult icons. Um, I'm really enjoying the works of like uh, Craig S. Zoller and, and people like that. I think they're they're actually making movies that they want to make and not what's considered the status quo of what they should be making. And that's we need more of that. We need more people that are just making what they want to make and what they're passionate about. Well, also one of the things that I think Larry, you know, is sort of a dying no pun intended, a dying breed of, is that guy who can work in any genre. He can make comedies, sci-fi, horror, westerns, dramas, movies about drugs, cops, whatever. How many how many directors or writers or producers out there that can make a movie in any genre and it doesn't feel weird? Because, like, you know, if Quentin Tarantino made, as does ever get to make his Star Trek movie, that will feel weird because that doesn't fit for Quentin Tarantino. If all of a sudden Larry Cohen made a Star Trek knockoff, you'd go, you know what, it just sounds like Larry Cohen. It would probably, he'd probably pull it off for sure. Like, I bet he, it would have some of his Cohen quirks in it, but it would still feel like a science fiction movie. I think uh, if anybody could have been able to pull it off, it would be him. 
So I think he was sort of a renaissance man, and he's part of a, a genre that is just dying out and being stomped out by the Hollywood system, especially with the consolidation of, you know, Disney buying everything and all of the corporate mergers. People like Larry Cohen really, I think maybe that's why he, the last thing he directed was in 2006, was I don't think he could really work in this environment anymore. He could. I, I don't think he's right for the Hulu Netflix sort of movie. Nobody wanted that from Larry Cohen. He needed the drive-ins. He needed the video stores. That's where Larry Cohen flourished. And he needed the freedom to choose what what actors he really felt worked. I mean, he he was the reason why Kiefer Sutherland was the voice in phone booth over the phone because that's who he had in mind. The studio didn't well, want didn't want him, but he did. He was like, this is this is the guy that's going to work. Well, for Phone Booth, they originally shot the whole movie with Ron Eldard yeah. in that role. And then, for you know, I really like Ron Eldard, and I obviously don't know how he was in that movie, but they said it didn't work, so then they got Kiefer. Yeah. And I think that really sucks for Ron Eldard, who is a really talented actor who doesn't get enough credit. Yeah. that That's probably a real kick in the nuts to him. But I think Cohen, from day one filming, knew it would have been, it should have been Kiefer. Like, that's who he wanted. And it's it's great. Like, Kiefer is fantastic. And I think Phone booth is or that's the one that uh cohen wrote that one right yeah he actually yeah, wrote it a long time before it got made mm-hmm. the f- phone booth for a weird way became one of those movies that was famous for never getting made that yeah. thing got passed to every studio in hollywood every director in hollywood looked at that at one point and passed on it phone uh-huh. i think that was made 10 fifth written 10 15 years before it was made. That was one I remember reading about for years, for a decade, over a decade reading about Phone Booth. So when it finally got made, maybe it was built up too much for me. Huge disappointment when I actually saw it, though. I thought it was a really good movie. I maybe it was really because good you were just expecting so much. When I saw it, I didn't know anything about its production. I just thought it was a really interesting movie and they somehow managed to make it work having it take place in a phone booth the whole time. I, I just, maybe it was the fact that I had read for over a decade of this is the best movie never made that when it finally got made it it just couldn't live up to what my brain wanted from it i thought it was really good i i feel like cohen really showcased a lot of his fantastic writing in it so here's another cohen one that he wrote uh cellular which i think is a um a neat little underappreciated film about it i didn't like that one. Oh, you didn't like you know like cellular i thought it was i thought it was fun it's as good as and and phone booth i think phone booth was still good but i think phone booth probably would have worked better in like the late 80s early 90s like it's still what we got i think was still good but i think that having it come out then because the thing was it was like phone booths aren't really a thing anymore also i think it was maybe a little too long it would have worked better as an hour-long drama of like an nypd blue episode or something like that i I think i think phone booth would have worked better as a as a tv episode i Mm. thought for what it was it was really good yeah i mean hey maybe you know with him writing for television maybe it was you know Mm. and then yeah i was was gonna say the script might have actually been for a a a tv show that never happened Mm -hmm. yeah or like a tv special short tv movie kind of thing for like hbo or something well, I was just thinking like an episode of a cop show. You know, you could have the cops trapped with the guy like Homicide Life on the Street did that whole episode where Vincent D'Onofrio gets cut in half by a subway. And the entire episode is them trying to keep him talking while they're trying to figure out if they can save him or not. That, that, that episode won a ton of Emmys. You know, I, I'm thinking something like that. Like, you know, the guy trapped in a phone booth. I could totally have seen that as like a Homicide Life on the Street episode mm-hmm. in the mid-90s. Yeah, yeah, I could totally see that. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. Larry Cohen may be gone, but Cecil is still here. Where can people find him? Uh, you can find me cradling my signed screen-used stuff canister over at goodbadflix.com as well as goodbadflix on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, and 1201beyond.com. And Peter is still here, and he will always be here because the monkey man will not die. That's correct. And you can find me wishing I would have gotten my stuffed T-shirt signed by Larry Cohen at some point, but that is is not to be on uh, Twitter at Cinematica, Facebook, The Cinemasticus, YouTube, The Cinemasticus, on 1201beyond.com with other fine programming like this show and merchandise and at Patreon at Cinematica where I'm climbing for dollars. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. We have a Patreon for 1201. Go and look that up. Use the Adam and Eve codes because, well, we need money. I'd like to keep the lights on. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And I would like to hear what your favorite Larry Cohen movie is, whether it's just one he wrote, maybe it's an old TV episode, or if your parents grew up watching Branded the same way mine did. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. Practically every one of the top 40 records being played on every radio station in the United States is a communication to the children to take a trip, to cop out, to groove. The psychedelic jackets on the record album have their own hidden symbols and messages as well as all the lyrics of all the top rock songs. And they all sing the same refrain. It's fun to take a trip. Put acid in your veins.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.